and I believe this was his credo of life. It's called the real man. He is never guilty of a single dishonest deed. He does not cheat, lie, or act dishonorably. He does not quit in the presence of hardship or hard work. He does not shirk, stall, grumble, or put off today's work to some tomorrow. He is never discourteous, ungentlemanly, unkind, or mean. He does not overeat, overdrink, or oversmoke, or overindulge in anything which will make him less efficient, less valuable, less serviceable, either physically or mentally. He never for a single moment in his work, in his study, or in his play does anything which might ruin his future. He meets difficulties bravely. And then in an article or a letter that he wrote to the public when he was running for sheriff, this is just an excerpt of that, he says, I'm proudest though that I am to proudest though I am to the realization that wives have sober husbands, food and shoes for little children, and more comfortable homes. I have told and prayed, endeavored and endured, spent and was spent, that home and humanity might be blessed and protected. He that would be greatest among you, let him become servant to all. I retire from service with an animosity for none, but the kindness of feeling for the many violators I have apprehended, and if ever I can do them a kindness, I shall be happy. Very respectfully yours, J. Logan Malloy. That was Kevin Malloy, the grandson of Logan, reading Malloy's credo and a letter to the Nashville Banner. You're listening to the Moonshine, Murder, and Mayhem podcast. Episode 14, Respectfully, Jay Logan Malloy. Facebook message sent February 24, 2020 to Kevin Malloy, grandson of James Logan Malloy. Hey, Kevin. My name is Bran Merritt. I'm starting a podcast about moonshine in McMinnville in the early 1900s. I would like to interview you sometime about your father and grandfather since they worked on the alcohol division of the IRS. If you're available or could point me in the right direction, I would appreciate it so much. Thank you for your time. The first episode of the podcast was released on March 23rd of this year, so I sent a message to Kevin fairly early on in my journey. When you send a message on Facebook and you're not friends with that person, sometimes they don't see the message as easily. So after he didn't respond, I felt like I'd hit a brick wall in my research until five months later. Reply sent I finally got June a reply. 19th. 2020. Sure, Bran. Send me a message or give me a call and we can get together. I have my grandfather's diaries and a scrapbook as well as some other things. Our first conversation on the phone was exciting. We were swapping stories. 
I told him about the declassified document that I had acquired. Kevin told me about the daily journals of Malloy detailing his activities day in and day out. We concluded the call with a promise to meet in the near future. The second call didn't go so well. Kevin told me he had listened to the podcast and felt that I had run his family's name through the mud. He was unsure whether or not he should be involved with the podcast after hearing my publicized version of the story. But despite his apprehensiveness, he still told me to call him back next week. I encouraged him that his side was just as important to my story. I needed his knowledge to make these men and their journey more whole. The third phone call went a lot better. I explained to Kevin that he held the pieces to the other side of the puzzle. My pieces were put together from stories I've been told and research I've discovered. Kevin had written artifacts that could offer an entirely different narrative. By the end of our conversation, we had decided to meet. Kevin suggested his home. On the drive over, I tried to take all of this in. The man whose grandfather I thought might have killed my own, the grandson of Malloy, who I'd come to see as the number one suspect in the murder of Otis Slim Merritt, had just invited me to interview him at his home. I can't tell you all the emotions that I was feeling that day. I was excited. I was nervous, ashamed, fearful, and intrigued. I really didn't know what to expect. I did know that Kevin had a lot of documented information to offer me, and I knew I wanted his side of the story. I wanted to tell James Logan Malloy's side of the story. When I arrived at Kevin's house, I realized it was not too far from where I work. Let that sink in. All of the answers to my questions that I had were just five minutes away this entire time. I knocked, not knowing what I was getting myself into. I didn't know Kevin, and he didn't know me. But we shared a passion for our family's history and somehow, some way, both of those paths were crossed. Paths that crossed some 80 years ago and were now being crossed by a new generation. Malloy and Merritt meeting again. Not as the law and the offender, but as researcher and family historian. Kevin's nice country house had a beautiful wraparound porch. Kevin greets me as I walk up the steps. 
He already has a mask for me in order to ensure we're both safe as we sit down to chat. I notice a couple of bass guitars lurking in a corner of his family room. And in his office is a shrine to his family, his work, and his love of music. I spy a copy of one of the greatest albums of all time, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. I, of course, wanted to talk all things music, but I reined myself in. I wasn't there for music. I was there to get a better view of Logan the Lol Malloy. A different view. Maybe a more accurate one. Kevin reads an excerpt from the Nashville Banner. 25th August, 1933, petitions for appointment in Bureau of Investigation. Malloy is boosted. McMillan, Tennessee, August 23rd, special. Three petitions carrying 763 signatures of citizens and businessmen in Warren County and also from Woodbury have been forwarded to Washington officials on behalf of J. Logan Malloy former federal prohibition agent in charge of the McMillan office. Mr. Malloy was released from office several weeks ago after 15 years of service in prohibition enforcement office. Mr. Malloy seeks a position in the new Bureau of Investigation, Department of Justice, which is now being organized by the federal government. The first petition was signed by 610 businessmen and citizens of this city and county, while a second petition was signed by 129 women in behalf of Mr. Malloy's candidacy. A third petition addressed to Senator Kenneth McKellar and Nathan Bachman and signed by 24 professional men of Woodbury urged that Mr. Malloy be recognized for his efficient services as a prohibition agent and that he be given an appointment in the Bureau of Investigation. Kevin relayed a sentiment of his father's that really strengthened a point I made at the beginning of this podcast. In those most trying times, Americans were just trying to get by, to simply feed their family, to survive. Uh, I do remember my father saying that most of the people that were arrested were just trying to make a living. You know, they were, uh, it was hard times and, and, you know, they were just doing what they could do. But some of them, you know, were mean and, and ruthless people. So you had to, you never knew what you were walking into when you went to make a raid. And like I said, he was shot once himself. Several of his fellow officers were shot and several of them were killed. There were uh, reports of in here in the scrapbooks. I've got some things marked we can look at, but there were uh, agents fired on from ambush. Uh, a number of agents were killed. We discussed the Black Widow article. Kevin explains a normal week in the life of Logan Malloy to give me an idea of his day-to-day activities. You know, and then I just picked up one of his diaries and, and here's just a typical week or so. January 2nd, 1933, from eight, to eight in the morning to 4.30, he was on search for stills. The next day, from 7.30 to 1 p.m., he found one still Grundy County, met with informants in, in the afternoon. The next day, from 2 a.m. to 7 p.m., Van Buren County, Irving College, Hills Creek, and Five Mile Walk. 
found one still, arrested Jerry Coppinger. The next day, 8 a.m. to 10.30 p.m., Coffee County, one still, arrested R.H. Carr and J.W. Stout. Then 70 miles to Point in Van Buren County, located another still, left for future raid, 149 miles. Uh, the next day, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. in court, then 43 miles to Moore County, found a still left for future raid, then 68 miles to Spencer, then 10 miles to Cumberland Mountain, seized and destroyed still, three arrests. <clears throat> Saturday the 7th, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. office, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., 30 miles to DeKalb County, found another still, arrested D.W. Spurlock. Uh, 3 p.m. drove to Spencer for prisoner, 4.30 to 6, Putnam County Jail, then back to McMinnville at 7 p.m. Sunday, 8 a.m. to 2 p.m., 45 miles to Moore County, found one still, 90 miles total, and back to the office from 3 to 5. Monday from 8 to 6, Coffee County, 42 miles, found still, remained in wait for a day, 84 miles total. Tuesday, attended U.S. District Court. So in like 10 days, he found nine stills and started at 2 a.m. on one day and every other day was at 8 a.m. So he was very dedicated to, yeah. to the, the work and believed in it from the standpoint of not so much that the people were bad, but the alcohol was bad. His yeah. belief was that it ruined lives, you know, mm. that, that men would become drunkards and neglect their families. And he had a big yeah. family and... and good care of his family so that's that was his real motivation i think and you can see it in in his notes and his writing that he was you know who else gets up at two in the morning and you see this over and over and over again and works till eight or nine at night and it amazes me that he takes people in front of the judge at eight or nine at night so i don't know how they did that yeah, <laughs> kevin remembers his father talking about going on raids with logan it's interesting looking back at this stuff and uh, it's hard to imagine what it was like then. You know, I do, I do have memories of my father telling me, you know, what it was like. And you think about being 17 years old and going on raids and how exciting and, and <laughs> kind of scary that would be, you know, especially after your father had already been shot once, you know, uh, it, you know, it's a miracle that he wasn't killed in that. He got shot in the hip. The 45, it's a big bullet, and uh, fortunately it hit his keys and that slowed it down. And he ended up chasing the guy down that shot him, <laughs> which I thought was really amazing. Yeah, that is. So you know he must have been pretty tough. My dad said he could walk you to death. He he had long legs and and he walked all the time. He read in the diaries, five, ten, fifteen miles there, walking in the woods looking for things, you know. And, we start to discuss the validity of prohibition. We even discussed that until we both still lived in Warren County, that prohibition was still going on. Right. And, you know, it was, it was federal law then, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, it wasn't just something, you know, that was local. I mean, when I grew up in McMinnville, it was a dry county, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I mean, there were bootleggers there, the famous yeah. Miss Pokey. You've probably heard of her. I don't know, but she was a bootlegger in McMillan, and everybody knew about her and and went there. And, you know, that was in the 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, it was a dry county for a long time. Whether or not prohibition was about morality 
or taxation, Kevin ensures me that Logan believed his work, Extinguishing Steels, was sustaining the moral fortitude of his fellow men. So, you know, I, I agree. Prohibition was kind of a crazy idea, but it was the law, and his job was to enforce the law. And Kevin and I both agree that Prohibition was a pretty crazy idea, yes. But Malloy was doing his job. Kevin breaks down the heart and motivation of Logan as an alcohol tax investigator. You know, and he did it uh, with a lot of devotion and, and I think, you know, with the right intentions. Um, you know, he was an honorable man and, and did a really honorable day's work. I mean, you, you can just pour through these diaries and this is just a few of them, and there's, it's just the same over and over and over again. I mean, the the hours he put in and the miles he went, and you think about in the 30s what condition the roads were back then, and to go 194 miles, you know, um, I'm sure a lot of them were dirt roads. I know my dad talked about, you know, the roads being so bad sometimes the cars wouldn't, wouldn't even go through them. They had to have to get out and walk. You know, they had to park the car somewhere and just walk the rest of the way. And uh, he talked about walking up in the mountains and looking for stills. And, you know, he was the reason I believe, and this is indicated by my dad, that, you know, Logan Malloy wanted his sons to understand what he did and to see the conditions that some of these stills were in. My dad said that, you know, there would be dead squirrels floating in the beer, you know, and dead rats and possums and stuff. And, and to think that, Somebody's going to drink that, and that's going to be distilled, you know, but still, it's kind of just the concept of seeing the mash. And he said, you know, they hated tearing stuff up, but they had to do it because if they didn't, it would be reused. So they chopped up the stills, and they poured out the sugar, and he said he really hated to see the sugar go to waste, but, you know, it was like contraband at the time because it was associated with that still. So and they would, uh, you know, break the barrels open and, of course, dump all the, the, the liquor out or the beer out, whatever was there. And uh, and some of them they took in, you know, for evidence and you know, on display and stuff. I've got a picture in my living room of a still sitting on the, tied onto the hood of his car. He's taken in for either evidence or to display in the town, you know, so people could see it. I publicly apologize to Kevin for any shame that I brought to his family. After our second phone conversation, my conscience weighed heavily on me. My true intentions were not to tarnish any name, but to find the truth concerning the death of Slim. My motivation was solely in finding the culprit and therefore redemption for my great-grandfather. This is all I ever wanted for this podcast. I just wanted to publicly apologize. Well, I appreciate that. It was, it was very disturbing to, you know, I mean, I've, I'm 66. So my dad lived to be almost 91. So he was born in 1920 and he, he went on raids as, like I said, a lot of the, the boys did when they got old enough, uh, they became posse men. Uh, one of them was a deputy sheriff, Lynn Malloy, that's in there a lot. You hear him talking about, he was a deputy sheriff at one point and you'll, if you look at the entries in the diary, you'll see that it would be some of the same people would go on raids, and but some of them were 
either sheriffs or deputy sheriffs or law enforcement people of some, and they would group together. When you go to another county, he meet the sheriff there, and then they go together on a raid, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think he really wanted his sons to understand what he was doing. And uh, one of his sons became a law enforcement officer in uh, Chattanooga. Another one was a deputy sheriff. Uh, even I became a, I was a federal uh, security inspector. That's my badge. Uh, in fact, I was the director of security for a federal agency when I retired. So it wasn't law enforcement, but it was still security and basically preventing problems at places. So, you know, we, we just kind of had a proud heritage of public service. And it seemed like that was just all being uh, turned over. And, and, you know, my son's name is Logan Malloy. So I look at him and think, what's well, this going to affect him? He has his own business, you know, and someone's going to go, ooh, you know, those were bad people, you know, and, and they weren't bad people. Know, they were, yeah. He was trying to do the law of the land and what was was right, and I don't believe that he went around just wildly shooting at people. There were exchanges of gunfire in both directions, yeah. you know. And uh, like I said, some of the people were pretty rough and tough, and some weren't. Yeah. So, uh, but you didn't know what you're going to face. After Kevin discusses his thoughts concerning his family and their pride and heritage. It made me reflect on my upbringing adjacent to Kevin's. I was brought up to be wary of government in all of its forms and facets. Growing up and during college, I was encouraged to read all kinds of political and governmental rhetoric from every end of the spectrum. This might have derived from Slim's illegal occupation and then from my grandfather's dudes encounter with the IRS. Here's a story my dad told me recently. Dude started a tree business in the 70s. He was soon approached by some IRS agents with a business opportunity to participate in a sting operation that would seek out other businesses of similar fashion that didn't have the proper licensing. My grandfather, Dude, he did a friend's advice who told him that you have to live with your neighbors and friends. His friend warned Dude of getting in bed with the IRS. Shortly after he declined their offer, the IRS charged Dude's business with tax evasion. Both my great-grandfather and grandfather have passed down a heritage of governmental clashes. But we're not here to discuss how I garnered my theories of the government. We're here to get the facts and to get down to the truth of Logan's involvement in Slim's murder or the lack thereof. Kevin asked me straight up how I came to point the finger at Logan Malloy as my number one suspect. Well, you know, and I can, I don't know why he would do that either. I, I didn't understand 
going from that to my grandfather's death. Just based upon something one of your relatives said? I explained. At the end of the third interview with my granny, she waited until I shut off all of the recording equipment before she gave me Hillard Malloy's name. This name was then verified by my dad, who said it was the name concerning the vehicle confiscation. I did my research on Hillard and came up empty-handed because he had owned a cleaner's business since the early 20s, and I didn't see any connection at that time. That was until I connected the dots to Hillard's father, Logan, an alcohol tax investigator. This seemed like no coincidence, and this is how I drew my conclusion. Flawed, but earnest. Take a minute to listen to a word from our sponsors. Come on, move already. Ah, so slow. I am going to be late again. Does this sound like your typical commute? The boss is going to kill me. Sure, just cut me off, you... Ah, ah, ah. Let's be family friendly here. Wait, who said that? That's not really important. Would you like your commute a lot less disastrous? Yeah, I could use that. Well then, let me adjust your dial. (laughs) Introducing the Road Tripping Podcast. Just sit back and relax while our hosts Dean and Molly entertain you with trivia, history, true crime, the paranormal, and much, much more. All in the hopes that your commute will suck just a little less. Now back to the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem Podcast. When Kevin and I first connected, I relayed to him that I'd obtained a declassified document concerning the homicide of Jesse Harris by the hands of Logan Malloy. I sent him a link to that document in its entirety. Daniel Barnes and I discussed this in episode 10. Kevin relays more concerning the case of Jesse Harris. And regarding the the case against him over uh, in East Tennessee, um, the case was transferred to Hamilton County. Malloy was arrested and indicted in Marion County where the shooting occurred. The case was transferred here for a trial in federal court because Malloy was a federal officer. That's why it got transferred to federal court. There was you know, nothing nefarious going on there. That's just what they did in a, with a federal officer. Uh, the Chattanooga News, 20 November 1936. The case was dropped by the state and transferred to federal court. Uh, this is this. There, there was a civil case, I think, and a criminal case. And the, there was a compromise reach on the uh, civil case. Uh, I'll give you a copy of these, or you can look them up. And then, and then, Chattanooga News, 11 November 1936. Uh, J. Logan Malloy murder case is discontinued. It was uh, a Latin name. I'm not sure if I pronounced it correctly, but noli prosequi, which means a formal notice of abandonment by a plaintiff or prosecutors of all or part of the suit or action. Uh, so the case was basically dropped or discontinued. Malloy could have been entirely motivated to shoot out the motor. The case was dropped, as stated by Kevin. But I do still find this certain piece of information disturbing. It was contained within the declassified document. Uh, 
In compliance with your request to remove the above civil case, which was filed by the widow of Jesse Harris against Inspector Malloy, and which is pending in the Circuit Court of Marion County, Tennessee, you are hereby authorized to take the proper steps to remove this suit from said court to the United States District Court for trial and do whatever is necessary to protect the interests of Inspector Malloy and the government in this matter. Sincerely, Joseph B. Keenan, Assistant Attorney General. I don't believe this had anything to do with Malloy, but it is disheartening that Assistant Attorney General was more concerned about protecting the integrity of the government than a citizen of the country. Then Kevin brings up some other time someone was shot by Malloy. In fact, the, the, the Leander Slaughter story, that's the one man that I, I had known about him shooting, uh, and that was after they were shot at and one of the, one of the other uh, agents was shot in the shoulder. Uh, they laid there almost all night observing the, the still, and uh, it's, it's a pretty interesting story because um, it, it's a fair amount of detail about it, and he's the man that had killed the baby, yeah, his yeah, own baby. Yeah, so uh, he was really a bad guy. Yeah. Um, and he picked the baby up and smashed his head into something threw it in the fire. I mean, it, Well, and it was just because they were being shot at, he ended up shooting, he was hiding behind a tree shooting at them and my grandfather shot the tree and the bullet went through the tree and through him and killed him. Um, so, you know, it was just, there was a gun battle going on shooting in both directions, but they had already been, they were shot at first. You know, the agents were shot at by the, the moonshiner. Now some of them, they'd gone in and, uh, Leander Slaughter and another guy had left the still and uh, they went in and raided it and arrested three people that were there. And then Slaughter and this other guy came back and one of the agents saw him coming back and uh, yelled out and warned the other agents. And then uh, the shooting started basically and they chased him for a way and then they ran behind a tree and shot and uh, some of the he must have been shooting a shotgun because he said pellets hit the other officer and uh, in the shoulder. And uh, anyway, so he, and then he shot the tree and, and the bullet was powerful enough it went through the tree. So Malloy didn't mean to kill him, but thankfully he did. I don't believe anyone would argue against the shooting of Leander Slaughter. I don't have any any words for what this awful human did to his own flesh and blood. It was almost happenstance that Malloy fired a shot through a tree that ended slaughter. into one of the first meetings 
of Merritt and Malloy. Ever since Malloy's name was dropped, I've been so eager to find out about their first meeting. And here it is, in black and white. Regarding your, your great-grandfather, I've got two articles here for you. Um, this is the one, Face Liquor Charges, Nashville Banner, uh, 1931. Okay, so... I look back uh, Friday, November 20th, 1931, in my grandfather's uh, daily diary, and here's the account of the arrest. Um, leave 5 p.m. by government car. Uh, actually, it started earlier in the day, but I'm just jumping down to, to this part. Leave 5 p.m. by government car 4712 in uh, connection with Lynn Malloy, C.D. Reeves, and Earl Barrett. 12 miles to campaign, thence lay in wait for rum runners. At 6.45 p.m. arrested Otis Slim Merritt and Leslie McCorkle in possession and transfer, trans, transfer, or transportation, he abbreviates some things, uh, six gallons of whiskey and seeds, Chevrolet uh, sedan, and it gives the license number and uh, the engine number, the serial number, value $400 and 32 caliber coat, automatic revolver, no number, gives a value for that. Thence 12 miles to McMimble, arrived 8 p.m., made a conference before U.S. Court J.R. Oliver and attend preliminary trial, charged possession, transportation, liquor, no plea for merit, plea not guilty for McCorkle, uh, bound and held at court. And then, Again, in 1933, uh, Saturday, June 17th, 1933, uh, he starts at 3 a.m. that day. Uh, on From 3 a.m. to 3 p.m., on first investigation with Investigator Bell, drove government car 5365, 14 miles to a point on Hills Creek, Warren County, Tennessee, Thence walked five miles to a distillery located on, on the 16th. Now, this is the 17th, so the, the day before. Uh, shadowed same until 1 p.m. and left for further investigation. Returned livery, thence 14 miles to McMimble, arrived 3 p.m. From 7.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. on joint investigation with Investigator Bell and accompanied Lynn Malloy and E.H. Thompson via same livery in city arrested Otis, Slim Merritt, and Robert McCorkle, again, both of them together, charged transportation and possession of liquor and seized four one-half gallon fruit jars. Uh, and then it goes on about the car. Uh, and uh, so there's that. And again, he took him to court. I don't know how this news article of Slim's confiscation of six gallons of whiskey, a vehicle, and an automatic pistol got past me. In my months of research, I'd only found two articles on Slim. One was about his petition to run his taxi service from McMinnville to Mont Eagle. The other about his involvement in the Warren County Republican Party. Kevin gets into the vehicle seizure. Stumbled on the 33 one, you know, just mm -hmm. by accident, which I thought was kind of amazing. I mean, that's kind of one of those weird coincidences, like you said. But then 
looking through other newspaper articles, I found the 1931 one, you know. Yeah. And so then I went and looked up the, the diary date, and it corresponds real closely to the newspaper article. Yeah. Uh, and so that just that clicked with me that there's two cars, you know, and they were confiscated, but they were legally done. And in fact, I think in 31, it even says it's a new car. And then found an article in the Nashville Banner, 17th of May, 1923. And this is a announcement of the sale of an automobile that was seized in a violation. By virtue of authority vested in me, I, J. Logan Malloy, federal prohibition agent, will meet at one o'clock p.m. June 14th, 1923 in front of Waldorf Garage, Nashville, Tennessee, to the high, oh, sell, I will sell, that's what it is. I will sell at one o'clock. To the highest bidder for cash, one Ford sedan, Tennessee, license number, so-and-so, seized in the case of Harrison Head on May 9th, 1923, for a violation of the Federal Prohibition Act. So that just shows that once the cars were confiscated, they sometimes would, would turn them into a, a federal car and they might drive them, just like they do now. Sometimes when they seize a vehicle, they'll, the police will use it as an undercover car or something. Because I have a cousin who was a state trooper, and he said he had seized cars, and then they showed up later, you know, as a police mm -hmm. car. Uh, but that, uh, you know, it's possible that that could have happened to one of your great grandfather's cars, or it could have just been sold at one of these auctions. Wow. So, you know, uh, the idea that my uncle drove it around town and sort of flaunted it, I think, is erroneous. That I think it was maybe. It might have been a federal car and he was driving as a federal car or yeah. he might have just been transporting it to a sale or something. Listen very closely to both instances in Malloy's journal. So in 1931 and 1933, a total of two vehicles were confiscated. Could this be the origin of the vehicle confiscation story post Slim's death? The two vehicle confiscation matches up, but the dates are off. Did the story get mixed up and the vehicles were confiscated prior to his death? This would take a lot of wind out of my initial Malloy theory. Well, I'll keep looking through the diaries it's it's kind of a tedious process because yeah. they're you know they're all handwritten and it took me a while to get used to reading his handwriting uh and he uses abbreviations sometimes you know so i've, I've kind of gotten used to it though but well you saw those i gave you a copy yeah. of them but thank uh, you for that That's yeah sure appreciate it. well it was odd shortly after i talked to you i just picked up one of the diaries and started reading through it one night just because it kind of sparked my interest again to review them again, because I'd done it over the years, just kind of looked through them, never one into the other, just kind of mm -hmm. opened them up, read. I'm reading along, and there's that arrest in 1933, because I go, Otis Slim, and he's got Slim in parentheses, Merritt, and I went, golly. <laughs> uh, that's pretty crazy. And then I found that newspaper article, so that's what led me to the one that was before oh. that, 1931, so. You see, there's a larger storyline here and I believe that Kevin uncovered. Slim evidently carried an automatic pistol while making runs. Could my speculation into the Capone and Slim connection 
reveal something more than just a simple business transaction? Slim might have carried that pistol for protection from Capone's men. Melanie, Cooper Melton's granddaughter, told a story about the country folk arming themselves when conducting a liquor exchange with Capone's men. Kevin adds his speculations. You know, if Slim was involved with Al Capone, I mean, that's, we don't know if he was or not. I know that. But if he was, he had some bad people working for him, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. And, and actually, another thing I thought of, which I have no basis, I just was brainstorming on it, but, you know, there is an account in that article or that diary I gave you where he, he had taken a gun away from Slim. Mm -hmm. It was an automatic um, which in those days, automatics were notorious for going off, you know, mm -hmm. accidentally. So he could have shot himself by accident, you know, and nobody just wanted to bring it up. You know, I mean, I don't know. It's just pure speculation. Yeah, so if my speculation into the Slim Capone connection was true, Slim's death could have been at the hands of Capone's men. There are stories that lend to this being true. Kevin has concrete evidence that shows vehicles were confiscated prior to Slim's death, which brings into question the story from John High. Remember last episode's questionable tale of Logan's death by gunshot? John High was involved in that story too. Kevin assured me in an email after the last episode was released that his mother and father told him Logan died as a result of a car crash and not a gunshot wound. So maybe, just maybe, the bigger question is why John High would be weaving these wild stories or at least a large part of them. Maybe I've put too much stock into John High. By the end of our talk, I feel definite that I'm back at square one. Because I don't believe Logan Malloy killed Slim. I'm officially taking him off of my suspect list. Kevin ensures me of this near the conclusion of our interview. What he says speaks to the character and integrity of Logan Malloy. I want to clear our name, yeah. you know, and I think my grandfather was an honorable man. I know my father was, and I know all of my uncles that I, and I knew them all, were all very honorable people, and they were, you know, felt good about what they did. Not that, you know, they didn't feel good about arresting people, but they felt that they were doing the righteous thing at the time. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, he was just, that was his job was to uphold that law. And I think he did it very faithfully. And like I started out with his kind of credo that you can, you can hear all of that in that credo. And if you read through enough of his diary entries and you see how hard he worked, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe how many stills he found. And it's just day after day after day after day after day for years and years and years. 
you know, it's like it never lets up and he works on Sunday and <laughs> Saturday and uh, some days he takes Sunday off, but many days he works on Sunday. He works on Christmas day. Uh, so, I mean, that's somebody that's dedicated. They're not just doing it for, <laughs> yeah. you know, fun yeah. or whatever. Uh, they think there's a cause there, you know. And uh, he was, you know, highly uh, praised by not only uh, people in the agency, but, you know, like I said, that petition where all those 600 something people, that was a lot of people back then. And yeah. there's people in Woodbury and McMinnville. Yeah. So uh, I have no doubt he had a reputation among the, the moonshiners because he, he went out and found them, you know, yeah. and uh, I'm sure they were worried about that, yeah. you know. Uh, in fact, somebody, I've heard this story from multiple times over the years that, that uh, like I said, they would sometimes go kind of lay and wait and watch and see, you know, who was there and what was going on before they made a raid and that these guys started drinking their moonshine and started getting drunk and and this guy got up and went over to a tree and grabbed a limb and rung it like he was ringing an old telephone. You know, they used to have to ring, wind up the telephone to ring. He rung the on the limb and he says, uh, hello operator, uh, let me speak to Logan Malloy. You know, I'm so-and-so at, at the still, you know. And he was just drunk and goofing off. And yeah. my grandfather stepped up behind the tree and said, Man. speaking. <laughs> now, who knows if that's a yeah. real story or not? You know, yeah. a lot of the stories get exaggerated. Kevin is going to keep searching the records left behind from his grandfather. I pray that he does find something. The beginning of this journey led me to accusing Kevin's grandfather of murdering mine. I now don't believe that that's the truth. I'm thankful that Kevin has become an ally in my search. Maybe he will find a clue nestled in the thousands of pages left behind by Malloy. Maybe some sort of breadcrumb will be unearthed and lead me to more answers instead of more questions. For now, I'm going to let this podcast rest. I haven't reached the answers that I've been looking for. And I vowed to my great-grandfather Slim and my grandfather Dude that I would work diligently to uncover exactly what happened. But this hasn't been a lost effort by any means. Through this podcast, I've found out and revealed occurrences that were previously unknown to my family. That has made this worthwhile, and that is why I'm not giving up hope. There have been countless instances where I've been directed by something or someone along my journey. It's as almost if from the grave, Slim has been guiding my hand. In the meantime, I want you to leave with an insurance that I 
will return with any updates or new findings. I want to thank everyone for joining me on this project. And thankful to all the interviews and the interviewees, thank you for your time and your voice. Thank you for being right beside me in this search for truth, week to week, episode to episode. I urge everyone to keep Slim's story alive. Keep asking questions. Keep using him to encourage your own search for history. But most of all, don't forget the question that led us here in the first place, that directed us across the season one of the Moonshine, Murder, and Mayhem podcast. Who killed Slim? from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Stephanie and I am the host, creator and writer of the Uncover True Crime podcast. Each week, we uncover a different unsolved true crime case, ranging from missing persons, unsolved murders, Jane and John Doe's and suspicious deaths. You can listen to the podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and other podcast streaming apps as well as on YouTube by searching Uncover True Crime. Join us every Friday at 7pm GMT and uncover a new true crime case with us. Until then, please stay safe and have a good night. Now back to Moonshine Murder and Mayhem Podcast.